second thing is that today the cost of producing green hydrogen is three to four times more expensive than the cost of gray or uh, blue hydrogen. Therefore, the second important thing is that it's a technology and an industry that has to go down a certain learning curve, which will take some time. You are listening to the Siemens Energy Podcast Series. The energy sector is undergoing an unprecedented transformation, presenting both challenges and opportunities. The demand for energy is increasing worldwide. And at the same time, we must combat the effects of climate change and reduce CO2 emissions. On each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the world's cutting-edge thought leaders in energy and related subjects. Our goal is to help you understand energy, the challenges we face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources. Now, here's your moderator, Amy Pemple. Today's guest is Vinod Phillip, Chief Technology and Strategy Officer for Siemens Energy. In this episode, Vinod takes us on a deep dive of the key technologies that are driving the energy transition. He discusses hydrogen, renewables, infrastructure, storage, and much more. Vinod shares both the overview of key technologies as well as the obstacles, barriers, and opportunities for each. You know, innovation is key to navigating the energy transition. You know, what are some of the key technologies that you see as crucial to navigating the transition? Yes, yeah, so when we talk about the transition, what we're talking about is how do we transition from a energy system that is highly emittive in carbon to a zero or net zero energy system. And from that perspective, there are five technologies that we see as very relevant for the mid to long term. Number one is we look at storage, because as we have the amount of renewables in the grid coming in, either through wind or solar, the grid needs to have the capacity to manage the load fluctuations. So energy storage is going to be one very important technology. In addition to that, hydrogen is going to be a very important area because with all of this excess renewables that we might have from time to time, can we use the green electrons to produce green molecules of hydrogen, which can then be used to decarbonize sectors. The third is around data, digital and everything dealing with digitalization, machine learning, robotics, and so forth, because a big part of how we use our assets in the energy space going forward is about condition-based services and condition-based monitoring. The fourth is in the area of resilient grids, because again, coming back to the point I made earlier about the high renewable penetration, the grids need to be able to manage the load fluctuations. So technologies that deal with the resilience of the grids are going to be really important. And last but not least, there are some long-term shots we have, for example, nuclear fusion or other such technologies that are still in the 10 to 15 year horizon of time of maturation. But without these sorts of long-term, high-density, clean technologies, net zero is going to be really hard. So these are, I would say, some of the five main technologies for the future. This is assuming that gas-fired generation, solar generation, wind, all of that is already part of the mix. So these five things I talked about is in addition to what is already part of the energy transition today. That's amazing. Um, so let's kind of dive into each of those in a little bit more depth on there as well. So can you share what, what do people need to know when it comes to energy storage? Yeah, so if you talk about energy storage, the first and most important thing is there are different durations of storage and different rates of discharge. So depending on the application, when you talk about a battery, a lithium-ion battery, that's usually a very short duration, fast discharge sort of technology. So one of the first things what we have to become clear about is when we talk about storage, 
What is the use case? What is the application space for storage? How much time do you need the energy stored for? And how fast do you want to discharge the energy when it's time for use? And based on this, you end up with different segmentations of storage. So you have short duration, medium duration, and long duration storage. Short duration being less than two hours, medium duration being between four to eight hours, and long duration being a few days, if not one or two weeks of capacity to store. And then based on that, you can go deeper and you can say, okay, what is the technology of storage? Is it going to be electrical storage where you store electrons? Do you store gas in the form of liquid or compressed air storage? Or do you store some other fluid like hydrogen? So you have to go into the specifics to be able to figure out what technology of storage combined with the duration of need leads to the specific sweet spot for a storage technology. So storage is a broad topic and you have to take a portfolio kind of approach there. And we tried to now invest in technologies for all these different sorts of durations, all these different sorts of use cases with one key message. We will not do everything ourselves. We will need partners. And therefore it's a question also of what storage technologies do we want to develop ourselves and which ones do we want to acquire from a partner and then combine them into our systems? And this is where we are looking at storage. Yeah, and so a question with that with storage, does the storage medium change based on the, the type of input? So if you're looking at wind or solar or hydro, do those basically then require a different storage medium or can the same storage medium be used across various different types of renewables? You could use the same storage medium across different types of renewables. So it doesn't matter whether the input energy is coming from, let's say, hydro or wind or solar. It is the electricity that you use to convert, for example, to hydrogen. So hydrogen is a molecule that is a carrier for storage. Green hydrogen can be produced from any of the different input sources. At the same time, there are other sorts of technologies where you have to link it to the rate of in energy coming in. So if you have something like an industrial process where you have a thermal asset like a, like a cracker or some sort of a furnace, for example, it needs heat. So in some cases, you have to link it to the field of use. So it's not so much about the input. The input is usually either electricity, electrons, or heat, and then you store it in the form of electrons, heat, or molecules. So the input doesn't really matter, but it's the output that you have to link up the technology to. That's great. And so the next piece you mentioned was on hydrogen. So can you share what do, what do people need to know or be aware about with um, the shift to hydrogen? I think the first most important thing to know is that hydrogen is a technology or a, or a molecule that in its green form is not going to be something that is near term. So there is a big hype around hydrogen today, but it is a market and an industry that is still in its infancy. The second thing is that today the cost of producing green hydrogen is three to four times more expensive than the cost of gray or uh, blue hydrogen. Therefore, the second important thing is that it's a technology and an industry that has to go down a certain learning curve, which will take some time. The third most important thing about hydrogen is recognizing that the use of hydrogen outside of industrial applications for example, in new areas like transportation, where you have trains and buses and trucks being fueled by hydrogen, or using hydrogen for power generation, like in a gas turbine, 
will require tremendous volumes of hydrogen, which means that there is a massive infrastructure play that is required to be able to create the infrastructure that can transport hydrogen. Just to give you an example, if we want to run a 300 megawatt power plant with hydrogen, you need something like 25 tons of hydrogen per hour. This is a massive amount of hydrogen. So the big challenge on hydrogen is not so much just the technology of converting green electricity into hydrogen. That is a technology with electrolyzers that is well on its way. But the even bigger challenge is can you create the infrastructure needed to transport the hydrogen, either in gaseous form or liquid form, from the source of production to the source of consumption. And this infrastructure challenge is going to be one of the most critical things to overcome in the course of the next eight years, to be able to be ready for a real hydrogen economy by the end of this decade, which is necessary for our net zero ambitions. And so what do you see as the biggest roadblocks with making that infrastructure possible? I think it's really about the investment and the political will required, because this is going to take a lot of time and money to be invested. We're talking about something in the range of 10 to 20 to 30 trillion dollars of investment in, you know, kind of either adding infrastructure or modernizing the infrastructure to be able to move and transport hydrogen. So I think the, the, the main challenge is going to be, can we create a system that has the financial capital, the political willingness, and the partnership systems between countries and companies and stakeholders to be able to move all this together? because there will be a need for a lot of cross-border movement of hydrogen. There will be the need of companies from different industries, be it energy or transport or industrials working together. So this partnership mindset together with the financial and political willingness to invest in it, I think are the biggest challenges we face today. That's great. And, and the next point you had mentioned on was, you know, just on the shift of data and digital, how does that play into the energy transition? Yeah, because I think what you have to look at is today we have, just talk about Siemens Energy, we have about 100,000 assets around the world producing one-sixth of the world's uh, electricity. How do we make sure that these assets are being operated at their best optimized performance? This would mean that we need to be able to collect the data from the assets, to be able to see how well they're performing, and then tweak the data, tweak the parameters to be able to get much higher performance, right? If you can do this, today there are many assets that have been installed, let's say 10, 15, 20 years ago, that are not working at optimum performance. Now, instead of replacing them, if we can find a way to use data smartly, create some really sharp insights, then you can improve the performance of these assets without having to invest significantly in upgrades or significantly in the hardware changes. That's the one side of using data to be able to do more with the assets we today have. The second is using some of the latest methods around computation, simulation, modeling, augmented reality, virtual reality, and all of that to be able to design better product so that you can design them faster, you can design them cheaper, and they perform even better. This is another place where the digital tools and computational capabilities can be brought to bear. And the last is being able to save costs for our customers and societies at large. Because if you are able to start using data 
to shift from reactive maintenance to proactive maintenance or even predictive maintenance, then you can really bring down the OPEX, the operational expenditures, by becoming much more targeted in when you intervene for a maintenance or service uh, action. So this is where I think you know data, digital, and all the computational methods that are out there today can be really brought to bear to help improve the energy systems. And you spoke a bit about this with infrastructure, but the next thing you mentioned was a resilient grid. And so how should people be thinking about that? So one of the things you have to keep in mind is the grid we have today in many of the developed countries have been installed 20, 30, 50 years ago. So the grid infrastructure is actually already overdue for modernization and upgrades. There's a massive loss of electricity and a massive loss of electrical efficiency because of the outdated nature of grids. So the first thing you've got to do in many parts of the world is invest in modernizing and upgrading the grids so that they become more efficient. If the second thing is in many areas, we do not have grids today where people don't have access to electricity. Almost 800 million people do not have access to electricity today, which means that we need to be able to bring them electricity, which means we have to invest in new grid infrastructure. And the third is there are some areas where the new grids already exist. They were installed, let's say, in the past one or two decades. They need to be made more digital. They need to be made more automated. They need to be made more pre, uh, proactive. Because what's happening is in these grids, there was a time when all the power generation was coming from base-loaded machines like coal plants or gas plants or nuclear plants. So you could predict the load profile that is coming into the grid. Now, with more and more wind and solar coming in, the load profile of the energy coming in from these renewable sources is very much varied depending on how the weather patterns emerge. So the grid starts to see a lot of change in the flux of energy coming in, which means that if you have to build in a certain amount of resiliency in the grid, you have to put in a certain amount of digital connectedness so that the substations, the transformers, and all of these can be connected to see how patterns, are, whether patterns are changing, and then based on that, adjust the amount of base load you need or not need, and then you create a grid that is not you know, being subject to shocks. And every time a grid is subject to a shock, it runs the risk of breaking down, that then leads to blackouts and burnout, uh, brownouts. So the whole notion of how do we create a grid, be it a new grid, an upgraded grid or a resilient grid around the world is going to be, again, one of the key investment areas for the energy systems of tomorrow. And we are talking about hundreds of trillions of dollars to be invested over the course of the next 30, 40 years to be able to have a grid that can then support a net zero energy system for the planet. And this is another area where a lot of work is needed. And this sounds kind of like it's pulling together a lot of the pieces that you've mentioned so far. I imagine this takes storage, the infrastructure, new energies in the places. I guess, what is, how does this take in terms of people working together to make this happen? Yeah, I think that's the key because I think, you know, not everybody has all the answers. But one thing is clear that if you get the right people around the table and they are all focused and aligned for the same target, then you can bring the best of the best to bear. So there are some areas where we need more financial capital. In other areas, there is financial capital available, but they need more technology. In other cases, technology is available, they need better regulations to incentivize the adoption of the technology. 
In other areas, there is technology, there is regulation, but there is no customer pull because the customers are might, uh, maybe invested in another uh, path forward. So I think this combination of regulation, technology, finance, and the users or the consumers, that becomes a really important network that we have to uh, constantly coordinate between and try to drive as much of convergence or collaboration as possible. Great. And then the last kind of piece you mentioned was the long-term possibilities of technology. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned nuclear um, fusion there, but what are some of the other things people should be considering about or what should they be considering about in the long term? I think in the long term, there are a lot of different technologies being looked at, right? I mean, but one of the ones that we have to keep in mind is what gives you the right sort of power densities? Because what you what you need is a technology that is not. First of all, let me back up a second. You won't have a one one shot solution or a, or a single single solution for this whole challenge. I think that in the long term, you will have to look at how can we make our solar power solar generation much more efficient. Because today, the generation capacity of solar in terms of efficiency is quite low. We're talking about the solar panels of today mostly in the high teens, low 20s of efficiency. There are new panel technologies out there that can get you to the high 20s, low 30s, which is a massive increase in output from solar. The second is you look at how do we create the resiliency in the supply chains around the world through automation, through data, through robotics, and so forth, to be able to provide the material you need for this large increase in renewables that is anticipated. So there is a lot around automation, logistics, and manufacturing technologies that need to be improved. Then you talk about technologies like nuclear fusion, which is something that is probably 20 years out. But if you can crack that, and many startups today, there are over 30 startups around the world that are using private capital to be able to develop the next generation of nuclear fusion. If we can crack that puzzle, then we are able to produce large amounts of energy, emissions-free, and also the good thing about nuclear fusion in some cases is you also don't have the radioactive waste that some of the typical nuclear fission processes have. That could be another, I would say, holy grail sort of a solution. But to be very clear, this is all in a very early stage we are talking about going to a smaller scale demonstrator by the end of the decade. And we're talking about a full scale of nuclear fusion in some of these chosen areas, not before the middle of the next decade. So this is really a long-term play, but it's important to keep these in mind because the demand side of energy is going to continue growing. And what we don't know today is as the amount of renewables needed goes up, the amount of consumption of rare earth materials or other sort of materials is going to be affected. We can't be too single sourced on one technology alone. So being able to diversify the risk by having different technologies is also part of it. So a lot of different things. And last but not least, we still haven't cracked the, the, the code to large scale, utility scale, long duration storage. Because let's assume that you have a week or two weeks or three weeks of no sun or low wind, you will need gigawatts of storage capacity that can be installed at cost. That is also something that has not been really tackled up to now. A lot of companies are working on it, but there is a lot more to be done there. So when you think about the time duration of eight to 10 years and beyond, there are still a lot of fundamental areas that we can look at. 
nanomaterials? How can you use nanotechnology in energy? How can you use a lot more of, uh, I would say, uh, low-cost materials that you can use in a more sustainable manner? Sustainable supply chains, all of this are a lot of areas to do work and a lot of opportunities. That's great. So while we've been talking a lot about technology and how it's crucial, there's also an uncomfortable truth that technology is not the problem. Uh, what is your viewpoint on that? Yeah, what I mean by, you know, that statement in a way is that you have to look at it from a infrastructure and scale-up perspective. So in many cases, technologies today are there for some sort of a prototype or early stage maturity. This has been proven through, I would say, scaled down tests and certain prototypes. What has not yet gained traction is how do you scale these up for a large user base or a large utilization scale. And the main reason for that is today people are still comparing some of these new technologies to be from the very beginning as cost efficient as some of the more mature technologies which is an unfair comparison because all the technologies, for example, if you look at hydrogen based on PEM electrolyzers, comparing that technology, which is probably 10 years old, to an existing technology, which is 50 years old and has been already optimized on the cost basis is an unfair comparison. But what this does is it creates a barrier to the introduction of the new technology because it is being very quickly stopped or very quickly being judged as non-competitive without properly letting it go through the learning uh, learning curve. So what that means is that I think business models have to be more flexible and more open to some initial cost at the beginning to be able to get the technology introduction done faster. Secondly, consumers need to be willing to pay a bit more for some of these new greener technologies because it does come at a price. Nothing is free. And the third is there needs to be the right sort of regulatory framework that incentivizes companies to invest in these new technologies and adopt these new technologies, like a carbon pricing that is competitive enough that it forces companies to look elsewhere. And this is what I mean by saying that, you know, it's not just the technology that is to be looked at, but also how do you create the environment the financial, the regulatory, and the, accept, the social acceptance environment for these new technologies so that the ramp up and the maturation can be accelerated. That's great. And then so uh, there's also this uncomfortable truth that we can't do this alone. And so how will be your viewpoint on that? I think it comes back to this whole notion of partnerships, right? And that's one of the reasons why an event like Sarah Week is so important. Because this is one of the few places where you can sit around a table where people representing governments, technology providers, customers and utilities, sector major players in different sectors, and of course, you talk about financial investors. So each of these stakeholder groups brings a very unique set of capabilities and competencies that, can, that are essential for the energy transition. We cannot make the energy transition with, with regulations alone. We cannot make the energy transition happen with pure technology. We cannot make it happen only with financial instruments. We cannot make it happen only through political pressure or political agendas and targets. So what this means we cannot do it alone is simply that the challenge is so complex, the challenge is so large, you need the stakeholders to work together and come up with 
convergent strategies to come up with aligned objectives so that we can support each other in getting to the end state, which is to be at a net zero planet by 2050, 2060. And the reality is we are running out of time. And the only way you can speed up and not have to do everything by yourselves is by collaborating, cooperating, partnering up and using the strengths of each other so that you can speed up the rate of development, you can de-risk the risk of the new technologies, and you can share in the cost of development. And all together, it can create a very symbiotic and convergent effect. It's amazing. And then the, uh, the last question we really have here is, you know, what is something that uh, you believe about energy that others would disagree with? <laughs> I would say, first of all, that the need for gas-fired or rotating equipment in the grid is not going to go away. So we cannot think of a net zero future without some type of a gas-fired generation. It doesn't have to be fossil, but you need gas-fired generation. It could be hydrogen. And secondly, I also think that a net zero future will have a play for nuclear. Without nuclear and without clean gas, you will not get to net zero. Now, I don't know if this is a view that everybody will disagree with, but I'm pretty sure this is a view that many people will disagree with, but I think it's essential. Uh, any other final kind of pieces you'd like to add? Well, I would say let's all make sure, you know, from a Siemens energy perspective, if we want to be the energy technology company that is an integrated energy technology company with a strong ESG focus, the only way we can do this is by opening ourselves up to each other, both internally and externally to partners and uh, collaborators and suppliers, both inside the company and outside the company. So to me, this is not so much about technology or finance or uh, governments. It's really about having a mindset, a willingness to recognize that we, each of us, has a very clear role to play in the saving of this planet for future generations. And the only way we can do that is if we have the right attitude. So in this case, I would say attitude is what counts the most. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at Siemens-Energy.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Energy is providing this podcast as a public service. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Siemens Energy. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own, and their appearances on this program do not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Siemens Energy employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Energy or any of its officials.